You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 273 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. As y'all recall, the Chancellorsville campaign was the result of the federal commander, Major General Joseph Hooker's decision to set in motion a bold plan in late April 1863. Hooker would split his huge army into three pieces. One piece, his cavalry corps, would make a wide circle around the enemy's left flank and drive toward the vulnerable rebel rail system and also threaten Richmond. The Federal Infantry Force, seven full corps consisting of nearly 120,000 men, was split into two additional pieces. Hooker would leave three and a half corps in the Fredericksburg area to hold the enemy's attention there while Fighting Joe himself accompanied the rest of the troops on a march up the Rappahannock. Once that river and the Rapidan had been crossed upstream from Fredericksburg, Hooker's maneuver force would be in a position to sweep down upon the Confederate Army's flank and into their rear. Hooker hoped to either smash the badly outnumbered Confederates between his forces or compel the rebels to withdraw south toward Richmond. Hooker boasted, quote, Our enemy must ingloriously fly or come out from behind his defenses and give us battle on our own ground, where certain destruction awaits him. But instead of allowing Hooker to fully dictate the course of events, the Confederate commander, General Robert E. Lee, came out from behind his defenses with most of his army and engaged Mr. F.J. Hooker in battle to the west of Fredericksburg at Chancellorsville, in the midst of the wilderness. After stopping the Federals' advance, Lee and Stonewall Jackson, on the night of May 1st, decided on a bold flanking maneuver of their own, which Jackson executed successfully the next day. Stonewall's famous attack on the evening of May 2nd smashed the Yankees' right flank and resulted in the rout of the Federal 11th Corps. But nevertheless, the bulk of Hooker's army at Chancellorsville remained between the two pieces of Lee's force. And remember, a third piece of the Confederate army remained at Fredericksburg under Jubal Early. Hooker failed to exploit this opening, though, 
and instead ended up pulling his men back into a tighter defensive position in the aftermath of heavy Confederate assaults on May 3rd. Robert E. Lee wasn't given the opportunity to immediately attack Hooker again, though. That's because when Lee learned of Sedgwick's success in breaking through Early's line at Fredericksburg, the Confederate commander needed to deal with that threat. So he decided to divide his army again, leaving a handful of men under Jeb Stuart to keep an eye on Hooker, while Lee concentrated the balance of his force between Chancellorsville and Fredericksburg, near Salem Church, where the rebels had brought Sedgwick's advance to a halt late in the day on May 3rd. On May 4th, Lee intended to destroy Sedgwick, but the failure of his subordinates to carry out his wishes in a timely manner or to coordinate their attacks frustrated Lee's plans, and so Sedgwick was able to hold on and then pull back to a new line closer to the river, protecting Banks Ford. That night, Sedgwick's force used the ford to withdraw to safety across the Rappahannock. On the morning of May 5th, after learning of Sedgwick's escape, Robert E. Lee shifted his attention back to Hooker. The Confederate commander ordered Jubal Early to return and reoccupy his lines along the heights at Fredericksburg, and then Lee began to move the rest of his troops back to Chancellorsville to rejoin Jeb Stuart. There, even though Hooker had pulled back, turtle-like, into a strong defensive position with his back to the Rappahannock and U.S. Ford, Lee was nevertheless determined to attack as soon as possible on May 5th and deal with Mr. F.J. Hooker once and for all. Robert E. Lee may have allowed Sedgwick to slip through his fingers, which was regrettable, but Hooker still presented a tempting target with his back to the Rappahannock River, and it was Lee's intention on May 5th to hurry everyone back to Chancellorsville at once to overrun the federal lines as soon as possible. Unfortunately, the weather didn't cooperate. A drenched Georgian recalled how, quote, I do not think that in all my life I ever saw a grander electrical display, heard more continuous or louder thunder, or was in a greater downpour of rain. The vivid lightning was blinding, not in quick, brilliant flashes, but as if we were in a great sea of livid light. A fierce thunderstorm blew through Virginia, dumping several inches of rain on the Rappahannock Valley. The rain came down in sheets, lashing Lee's men and transforming the dirt roads into quagmires. The rebels struggled mightily to cover the half-dozen miles back to Chancellorsville, but their march quickly slowed to a crawl through the mud. Meanwhile, Jeb Stewart's troops, who had spent the preceding day fortifying their lines opposite Hooker, sat miserably as, quote, rain fell in torrents and soon our trenches were filled with water. The previous day, Lee's subordinates and stubborn Union defenders had frustrated his plans to crush Sedgwick. Now, on May 5th, it was the weather that derailed his plans to attack Hooker. Because of the storm, Lee had to abandon any notion of launching an attack that day, 
but he fully intended to assault Hooker's position the next morning. However, many of the rebels there in the wilderness had serious misgivings about attacking the enemy lines when the Yankees had had a couple of days to fortify their positions. Given the tangled terrain and the fact that Hooker's force here still outnumbered Lee's army, Confederate artillerist Porter Alexander reflected on, quote, how easy it was in that wilderness thicket to make a line impregnable. It made me very unhappy to think of seeing our infantry sent to charge such a tremendous force in those entrenchments. Another Confederate officer, Dorsey Pender, admitted that he dreaded the thought of attacking the enemy here when they, quote, had such terrible odds and held such a strong position and so well fortified. As it was, the Confederates would never have to test their mettle against the Union defenses here because Joe Hooker had already called a meeting of his commanders and informed them of his decision to pull out and withdraw back across the Rappahannock. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. As the late night hours of May 4th had turned into the early morning hours of May 5th, Joe Hooker, for the first and only time in the campaign, chose to involve his corps commanders in his decision-making. Although he would later insist the meeting wasn't intended as a formal council of war. The meeting opened at midnight. Corps commanders Meade, Reynolds, Howard, Sickles, and Couch were present. In the darkness, Slocum couldn't immediately be found by the messenger sent for him and only arrived as the conference was ending. Hooker also called in his chief of staff, Dan Butterfield, from across the river, as well as the Army's chief engineer, Governor K. Warren. Hooker briefly addressed the situation on both their front, facing Chancellorsville, and over on Sedgwick's part of the battlefield at Banks Ford, and then presented two propositions for their consideration. 
either a forward movement the next day here on their front, or a withdrawal of the army back across U.S. Ford and an end to the campaign. Then Hooker and Butterfield excused themselves, leaving the rest free to express their opinions. Warren proposed to stay and fight, as did Meade and Reynolds, neither of whom had been heavily engaged on May 3rd, and so still had large numbers of relatively fresh men at their disposal. Reynolds, having cast his vote, lay down on a cot for a nap and asked Meade to wake him when the deliberations were concluded. Meade added that he knew that absent Slocum also wanted to stay in attack. Howard, too, wanted to fight. He acknowledged it was the rout of his 11th Corps by Stonewall Jackson's surprise flank attack that had, in large measure, brought on the present crisis, but that his men were now, quote, ready for the work, end quote. Howard, however, insisted it wasn't the opportunity to redeem his reputation that influenced his decision. No, he voted to fight, he said, because it was the right thing for the army to do. Couch, with the caution of a McClellanite, seemed to favor retreat, although he was somewhat noncommittal about it. Later, he would claim that it was because he didn't trust Hooker's leadership. Sickles favored retreat. He wasn't a professional soldier like the rest, and so, as a political general, Sickles based his decision on political rather than military reasons. He said that a reverse now for the Army of the, of the Potomac would have grave consequences for the North. A victory here over the rebels was now, quote-unquote, doubtful, he said, while he didn't think the fallout of a withdrawal would be fatal for the country. Hooker now re-entered the room, listened to a summary of the discussion, and concluded the four-to-two decision to stay and fight meant the Army should retreat. It was obvious to everyone that Joe Hooker had already made up his mind to pull out, and nothing his lieutenant said changed it. He took responsibility for the decision, Hooker declared, and so the Army would go back across the river at U.S. Ford. The meeting was dismissed. When he was awakened and informed of Hooker's decision, John Reynolds grumbled, What was the use of calling us together at this time of night? when he intended to retreat anyhow. Hooker had conceded the battlefield to the enemy. His plans had ended in failure. By first light on the morning of May 6th, the last of the Union infantry hustled across the pontoon bridges to the safety of the north bank of the Rappahannock. By 7 a.m., the Federal engineers had dismantled their spans, and Joe Hooker's campaign was over. Two months after the end of the campaign, so the story goes, on the way north toward Pennsylvania, an officer asked Hooker what went wrong at Chancellorsville. Fighting Joe replied, For once, I lost confidence in Hooker, and that is all there is to it. The story, apocryphal as it might be, is still as close to an explanation of what happened as history is likely to get. In a letter to his wife, George Meade told her, quote, 
General Hooker has disappointed all his friends by failing to show his fighting qualities at the pinch. Meade thought that, quote, the last operations have shaken the confidence of the Army in Hooker's judgment, particularly among the superior officers. John Gibbon was even blunter, stating, quote, No one whose opinion is worth anything has now any confidence in General Hooker. In Washington, Abraham Lincoln was devastated by the news of Hooker's defeat. Newspaper reporter Noah Brooks said, Had a thunderbolt fallen upon the president, he could not have been more overwhelmed. Chancellorsville had been a costly campaign for both sides. The Federals had lost just over 17,300 men killed, wounded, or missing, which represented 13% of the Army's strength. The Confederates, in contrast, lost about 22% of their force, or just over 13,400 casualties. This had been the deadliest contest to date for the two armies, and even by the end of the war, the numbers lost at Chancellorsville would be surpassed only by the butchers' bills at Gettysburg and Spotsylvania Courthouse. In the aftermath of the campaign, there was a decided air of defiance in the Army of the Potomac. There was a feeling that they had been embarrassed and beaten again, but it was not the soldiers' fault. Right up to the time Hooker retreated across the Rappahannock, they reasoned, the Army could have won the battle, and the Confederates could have lost it. In the minds of the Union soldiers, Hooker had been outgeneraled, certainly, but they hadn't been outfought. The Army of the Potomac refused to concede that it had been bested. Morale remained solid. The men remained confident in their ability and motivated by duty, training, and experience. Gettysburg and the road to redemption lay only eight weeks away. For his part, Robert E. Lee was coldly furious when he found out that Hooker, like Sedgwick, had slipped away. Lee had managed to squelch the majority of his anger by the time he wrote to Jefferson Davis on May 7th and reported, quote, In placing the troops in position on the morning of the 6th to attack General Hooker, it was ascertained he had abandoned his fortified position. The line of skirmishers was pressed forward until they came within range of the enemy's batteries planted north of the Rappahannock, which from the configuration of the ground completely commanded this side. His army, therefore, escaped with the loss of a few additional prisoners. Lee would write, At Chancellorsville, we gained another victory. Our people were wild with delight. I, on the contrary, was more depressed than after Fredericksburg. Our loss was severe, and again we had gained not an inch of ground, and the enemy could not be pursued. Lee recognized that Chancellorsville had been an amazing feat of arms by his outnumbered army, but that it had accomplished little of decisive impact. Yet, the sort of casualties the Army of Northern Virginia suffered at Chancellorsville simply weren't sustainable, but in the aftermath of Hooker's retreat, momentum and initiative still resided with Lee. The summer campaigning season still lay ahead, 
how Lee wielded the momentum and initiative in the near future would go a long way toward determining the ultimate significance of Chancellorsville. And so within days of the battle ending, he was in Richmond, lobbying for a march north into Pennsylvania. Robert E. Lee's search for another victory started in the woods around Chancellorsville and ended in the fields outside a town named Gettysburg. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Where Valor Proudly Sleeps, A History of Fredericksburg National Cemetery by Donald C. Vance. Buried on the grounds of Fredericksburg National Cemetery are the remains of Union soldiers who died in six different Civil War battles, Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, Mine Run, Wilderness, Spotsylvania Courthouse, and North Anna. Lying beside them are hundreds of others who perished while encamped in Stafford County, Virginia, during the winter of 1862-63. Many books discuss, in great detail, what happened during a Civil War battle, but this is one of the few that looks at what happened to the remains of those who made the ultimate sacrifice. For anyone who is familiar with Fans' books on Gettysburg, you know what to expect here a thoroughly researched, well-written account about the subject at hand, in this case, Fredericksburg National Cemetery. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Then we want to be sure to thank the newest members of the Strawfit Brigade, Lori, Chris, Daniel, and Patrick. And speaking of the Strawfoot Brigade, we're working on, hopefully, in the next week or so, hopefully having a big announcement about the membership program going forward. But more about that later. Also in the next week or so, we'll have another announcement about our trip to Gettysburg in June, since we think we've decided what we'd like to do when we meet folks on the battlefield there. So a couple of things to look forward to uh, here in the near future. But for right now, we want to say thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next week when we'll be talking about the death of Stonewall Jackson. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.